So welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek, and along with me today is Shant Karnikian. Uh, Shant, where are we today? We are remotely recording this. I'm at home. Brian's in the office, and we're dealing with the effects of the coronavirus. So we're we're trying to be good and trying to stay safe, and we're working remotely. So excuse us if you hear weird noises or the quality. The only is- weird noises would be coming from you, Shant. So we haven't done. Uh, civil action in a little while, catching up on cases. We're, we're trying a slightly different format, which is we're trying to group cases together now. And today we're going to be covering class action cases. We're going to take four class action cases, uh, I believe two from the Ninth Circuit and two from the California Court of Appeal. And Sean, tell us a little bit about the four cases that we're going to cover today. Sure. First, we're going to talk about a case that involves meal and rest breaks and the uh, value or the lack thereof, I guess, of having a bad uh, policy, uh, facially uh, unlawful policy. Um, And then we're going to talk about a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal case that has to do with uh, discovery to find a replacement class representative and whether or not plaintiffs are entitled to that. Um, And then we're going to talk about a case that involves a supermarket chain and classifying an employee as exempt versus non-exempt and, and what, what are the proper jury instructions in that case and what factual considerations need to be, uh, need to be looked at. And lastly, we're going to talk about a case that involves exotic dancers and the objection to a class settlement. Overall, uh, you know, I was thinking that these are all sort of bad cases for class actions, and I think it's just the it demonstrates the slow but steady march towards not the death of class actions, but the weakening of class actions, especially in the employment context. And I think that there's a number of reasons for that, and probably outside the scope of the case today. But uh, certainly, when you look at these facts and circumstances, they they run the whole gamut of cases that seem to have merit, maybe cases that have less merit, cases where they're being constantly challenged. But uh, it seems that at least in the last few months, the only published decisions are cases which are less than favorable to the class action practice. So with that editorial comment, let's get started, Sean. Our first case today is Cacho versus Eurostar, which I know you and I were both very excited about because we thought this dealt with high-speed train travel in Europe. Right. And we're both big, very big train fans. But it's not. Eurostar is actually the company that owns the WSS shoe stores that are located throughout California. Um, they're kind of low-budget shoe stores. But it started out of a meal and rest break um, class action that was filed by the plaintiff here with a number of class representatives. Um, the employer here, Eurostar, has a facially non-compliant meal break policy. And it has a facially non-compliant rest break policy. And I'm not saying facially non-compliant because I contend that it is. The court has found that the lower court and the court of appeal found that these are facially non-compliant. So just to be perfectly clear, what we're talking about here is uh, manuals or employee manuals or employee handbooks, which on their face don't comply with California law with respect to meal and rest breaks. And uh, that was apparently the cornerstone of the plaintiff's argument in this case. They had two class representatives. And you would think that with the facially invalid um, employee manuals, that this might be a shoe in to at least get certified, because it used to be that getting a case certified was just the first step, and getting it certified was being able to establish a prima facie evidence of your case that you, you could prevail on the merits. 
you could prevail class-wide on the merits. And over here, I don't think there's anything more indicative, uh, I mean, short of the defendant or their HR rep getting up and saying, yes, we violate the law. I don't think there's anything more indicative than a policy that, for example, here for meal breaks, it allows for a meal break, but it doesn't call for it to be in the first five hours of the shift which is required under California law. Then in terms of the rest breaks, it requires um, a, um, a rest break within the uh, w- after the first four hours of working. But once the employee works for more than 10 hours, they get a third one and it doesn't call for that. So these policies are both on their face, violative of California law. Um, so, but but, but what happened here? where do we go with this? So what happens is the court looks at it and a respected trial judge and a very respected court of appeal. And they look at this and they buy into the arguments the defense raised here, which are really, I think this comes down to, Sean, um, if you can go all the way back to the last recession in 2008, 2009, when the banks were being bailed out, there was a saying out there about too big to fail. And this has now become too big to certify. Too big. You're too big. 2,500 employees, 69 stores. Um, And the defense comes in and puts on enough evidence to show that the practice varies from store to store, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's not like the plaintiff here didn't have a lot of evidence. They weren't, you know, operating in the dark here. They had had multiple declarations from employees. They had class representatives who had testified. They had an expert. And a pretty well-respected expert, right? Right. Yeah, they had an expert too that did a sampling and showed that when you look at the records, you see that there is a violation. And and again, this isn't a decision on the merits. This is purely for class certification. And I'm sure by this point, if you're listening and you haven't tuned out, you know what those requirements are. You just need to show that this is something that you can present on a find liability on a class-wide basis. You don't have to prove that the violations were occurring on a class-wide basis. You just need to prove that you can later on show it. I think they had enough here to even prove the merits. No, Sean, what they actually did is they were able to bring in evidence here and show that um, with this expert that 12.3% of the shifts in the sample showed a meal break that was missed, short or late. So um, right there, that should be enough evidence that there's something in the court. What the court ultimately, I'm kind of distilling it down, but what the court ultimately concludes is that's just not enough. You haven't shown a uniform policy. And unless you can show that there's some kind of uniform policy, which will be easy for us to track and easy for us to award, then you're just not going to get your case certified. And ultimately, the legal words are individual questions predominate as to whether or not the plaintiffs had missed rest breaks and meal breaks, right? Yeah. It's just bad news. Um, I mean, we've seen this happen before, but more and more cases like this are building up an arsenal for the defense bar to cite to and say what what you said, Brian, which is too big to sue, too big to certify, too big to sue. Too big to certify. If you're this big, the case shouldn't be certified as a class action. It should be certified. It should not be certified. Instead, bring your individual cases, which we know the difficulty associated with that. And here, they, they focus on a case called Brinker, which is the sort of seminal California Supreme Court case that deals with missed rest breaks and meal breaks. Yep. And um, they said this case isn't Brinker because there isn't a consistent policy. And I looked at that and I go, well, wait a minute. There's a manual that, that's, that's obviously defective. Is, doesn't that get some weight in the analysis? Apparently and I, not. Apparently not, right? And if the defense can come in and say, well, in real practice, we didn't follow the manual, here's what we did, then that's going to be enough. Yeah. yeah. 
So that's fun. That's our first case today. Let's go on to our second case, Sean. Sure. This is is the uh, In Ray Williams Sonoma. This comes from the uh, Northern District of California, and it ultimately went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. And this involves, originally involved, a Kentucky resident named William Rushing, who brought a class action against William Sonoma because he was upset about what, Brian? Uh, he was upset about something that, you know, that strikes to the heart of every American, which is when you buy a sheets for your bed that are supposed to be a thread count of 600 and it turns out to be less than 600. No, I'm making fun of it. It is a consumer issue, though. And if somebody's being ripped off, they should have the right to sue. So Mr. Rushing, who lives in Kentucky, maybe the only person in Kentucky who's ever had a 600 thread count uh, sheet on his bed, um, was apparently upset because he bought him. He got him home. He crawled into bed one night and he realized, my God, this isn't, this doesn't feel at all like a 600. 600. Yeah. Threat yeah. I hate when I, that happens. It's awful. It's, how, it's terrible. It's terrible. So, with that in mind, um, what do we have in this case? What happened? So, um, first thing, uh, first thing first here, uh, the, uh, Northern district said that since Mr. Rushing is a Kentucky resident, Kentucky consumer law applies. And you know what I learned when I read this case about Kentucky, Brian? Uh, what did you learn about Kentucky? It's where they run the derby every year. Well, I, I knew that already, um, but I learned that Kentucky is not exactly a, um, a bastion of consumer protection. Correct. Uh, they do not have class actions, period. That's the end of the sentence. They do not have class actions. Well, I, I would say they have no consumer law class actions. I don't know if they have other class actions. Maybe maybe if, like, your shotgun doesn't work, you could sue for that. Maybe, maybe. That's an important right right there. Yeah, that's right. true. But yeah. they don't have any class actions in Kentucky. And as so a result of that, what happened? Individually, he can't per- proceed on a class basis. So what the lawyers would like to do, and rightfully so, and this happens all the time, oftentimes judges even suggest it, is the lawyer wants to do discovery to find out uh, the identities of California residents um, who have possibly pur- purchased this product. So the uh, trial court allows for um, the plaintiff's counsel to do discovery as to that. And they take a writ. William Sonoma takes a writ. In right. Bad news. And- that's the first order of business in discussing this case, which is the standard for granting a petition or a writ uh, in the Ninth Circuit is very high. That has to be either erroneous as a matter of law or a repeated error manifests itself in a violation disregard of the federal rules. The order raises new and important problems or issues, new law, et cetera, et cetera. And interestingly, this is a 2-1 decision. I don't know if we mentioned that before, but interestingly here, the, the Court of Appeal actually says it doesn't really fit in all those criteria, but it's sort of a balancing. We think overall the the order is just wrong. And so we're the Ninth Circuit. We can do whatever we want. So we grant a writ, right? Right. And, and, and they granted the writ and they looked at it and they said, no, 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 you cannot do pre-class certification discovery like this because they start considering the, the privacy rights of the Williams-Sonoma uh, company, the corporation, the privacy oh. rights of the corporation. They look and they they grab onto a case from 1978, long before you were born, called Oppenheimer Fund versus Sanders, the United States Supreme Court case. And they say this case just doesn't allow for the discovery of the list of class members' names. And we're going to say, as a result of that, this 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 order is wrong. 
And so that on its face sounds, you know, completely reasonable. And um, they say that the court's error, although not often repeated and not particularly novel, is just wrong. So we're going to um, turn over the, uh, the the district court's order. We're not going to allow discovery. And by not allowing discovery into the names of who the class representatives would be, it's effectively the death knell of the case, right? Right. It's kind of hard to proceed when you don't have a class representative and you can't even look at a list of who could be a potential class representative. So, so remember, a moment ago, I said that Oppenheimer case, from the way they describe it in this in this decision, sounds to be like a case that maybe they're following the law, and it is a Supreme Court case, and someday, Sean, you'll understand the import of the United States Supreme Court. Um, and, and, and I thought, well, you know, maybe it's consistent with recent decisions from the United States Supreme Court hating class actions, but no, it was 1978, it was a different court. That, but then I read the dissent by Judge Paez of the Ninth Circuit. And I come to find out that Oppenheimer isn't that at all, right? No, it's not. Um, It it actually doesn't stand for that. And what does it stand for, Brian? Well, the first thing it doesn't stand for is that um, it doesn't say that plaintiffs can't seek the identity and contact information of absent class members. It doesn't say that at all. It's a very narrow proposition. It was only because of the procedure that that kind of stock class action was based on that they couldn't get the specific names of those specific potential class members, right? Right. doesn't apply to all types of class actions or all types of consumer class actions. It was a very narrow decision. I mean, and the fact that it's from 1978 goes to show that this isn't really something that's followed a lot and hasn't been been discussed a lot by, by the court. So they had to really reach to, to be able to find something to uh, substantiate their opinion. And then, and then the dissent, dissenting opinion goes on to talk about how Rule 23 broadly empowers the trial courts to take measures that are necessary to protect or maintain a class action, um, particularly when you have absent class members, to protect the interest of absent class members. So basically now, a case is effectively, like you said, it's going to get thrown out, this is a death knell for the case, without having had the opportunity to talk to the actual class that the plaintiff sought to represent, and without having the opportunity to conduct substantive discovery into the merits of the issue here. So this case gets thrown out on a procedural issue that's that's kind of that's wrong. That's fundamentally wrong. Right. So second, that's our second happy case of the day. Now let's move on to our third happy case of the day, which is a case called uh, Safeway Wage and Hour Cases, and this is appeal from a, a rare um, jury trial of a class action case. Yeah, you don't see that happen a lot, so you know that this was kind of uh, litigated almost to the end. And well, not only was it litigated to the end, but apparently these class action cases against Safeway stores started back as early as March of 2002, again before you were born, Sean. Long before I was born, yeah. And um, involves people who were classified as what? Something like assistant managers of Safeway who were listed as exempt employees, right? Yeah, they they have different levels of managers. Uh, honestly, you know, this is my editorial opinion, but that's just a ploy to be able to pay these people less so they can have a better shot at classifying them as exempt from California wage and hour laws. But but that's what happened here. No, this- no, no, no. But this person, right? This person was exempt, and they were saying that they treated him as exempt employee, and as a first assistant manager, he would step in and periodically um, re- handle management. Uh, skills. That's that's the Safeway's argument, right? Yeah. 
Yes. And the issue that the jury was looking at was whether or not the tasks he was doing um, qualify as exempt work or non-exempt work. And in the trial, the judge gave the jury an instruction that said that um, whenever certain work is uh, deemed exempt, when it is helpful in supervising employees in the store or because it contributes to the smooth functioning of the store. And that language was a special jury instruction developed from earlier ca- earlier Safeway cases that have been litigated since 2002, as you were saying. So right. this is the jury doesn't deliberate, and w- what happens after that? Right. Well, but before we get to that, let's just very quickly run through a couple of the facts here that, that the argument that the employee was making was that his obligation was spending a lot of his time restocking shelves. So he was he was effectively a stock person. And as a stalker, uh, not a stalker, but a stalker, he would actually stock shelves and he would spend a lot of his time. And there was conflicting testimony in court about whether that was true or not. But ultimately, Safeway's argument came down to, if he did it, he sort of did it as a volunteer, as part of his training of other employees, making sure that they were doing his job, but it wasn't his job. But the argument that the um, that the employee raised was no. Sometimes I spend eighty percent of my day stuck. Right. Yeah. But 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 the so the and the jury got this instruction that well, if this contributes to the smooth functioning of the store, then then it um, it leans towards the bucket of uh, exempt work, and that's kind of the argument that's being. Uh, litigated on appeal here, whether or not that instruction is proper. And I guess the silver lining in this case is that the Court of Appeal says, um, hey, look, just because something uh, contributes to the smooth functioning of the store doesn't mean that it becomes automatically exempt. Everyone conceivably can be contributing to the smooth functioning of the store. So that's not enough. That's the silver lining. But the bad news is that ultimately the Court of Appeal upholds the uh, jury verdict. Right. What's really bad news about this case, though, is that this is I kind of call this a wobbler because there's legal issues in here which were important enough for them to publish. So they must have recognized the importance of them publishing and of this question about whether the tasks are exempt tasks or not exempt tasks and how it's categorized. But on the other hand, the jury was only out for two hours. So yeah. that was a big deciding factor, clearly, for the court. You know, and for me, I mean, you know, I've tried a lot of cases, and I the only time I've had a jury out for um, anywhere near that amount of time was my one and only criminal case that I tried, and they found my client not guilty in 35 minutes. So being out for two hours in a complex civil case is not a good sign for the plaintiff. In a class action, which you don't see a lot of trials of, so so you get a class action tried and two hours of deliberation, I mean, that kind of goes to show what the factual record might have been like. The jury might have already made up their mind looking at the facts in in the case. I'd I'd add one more thing to this case, and it's just always a cautionary tale, and we see this in so many of these cases, is that the appellant's lawyers, who are good lawyers, and we know, um, they apparently for the first time raised a Sanchez issue, which is inadmissible hearsay in an expert's opinion, for the first time, they raised it in the in the reply brief, not in their opening brief. And the court said failure to raise an argument in the opening brief constitutes a forfeiture. Um, just a good cautionary story I, tale. I don't know any of the background. I don't know what happened. But, you know, I think this ultimately comes down to the fact that you get a jury coming back that quickly. And they said it several times in the opinion. Uh, doesn't bode well for your your chances, uh, even though you're arguing a, a faulty jury instruction. 
Yeah. Should we go to our last case, Sean? Let's go to our last case. This is uh, the Murphy case, and this involves, um, this is in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal as well, uh, also from the Northern District, and it involves exotic dancers. Uh, two exotic dancers filed a class action against uh, the company that owned 11 nightclubs in the San Francisco area. Um, I, I, I'm not sure which ones, Brian. I know you keep asking me that. I don't know which ones they are. Um, and at the same time, there was a, another pending class action that involved some of the same nightclubs. Ultimately, a settlement was reached in this case. And um, one of the plaintiffs in the that were part of the class in the other class action decided to step in and object. And objections to class action settlements are not something that we see a lot, right, Brian? Oh, my God. Well, you know, the truth is that there was a point in time doing class actions, as I have for over 20 years. Um, that sounded like I was touting my resume. I've done a lot of class actions for a long time, and I've seen the change. And the important part of that is that early on objectors, there were few of them, and they were shakedown artists largely. And I say that with respect, but um, they were looking for a payout. And then as time's gone by, there have been more objectors who have legitimate grounds to object, who have, who have a basis to object. Sometimes they have a political reason for objecting. Whatever the reason may be, it's part of our process. And, and, and sometimes it's a very important part of our process. But here, the objectors raised a number of objections about what I thought was kind of a complicated settlement. And because it's complicated, Sean, can you explain it? Yeah, it wasn't just cash. So there was different tiers of settlement. And the first tier was $2 million in cash for compensation uh, for the settlement fund. And out of that would come the attorney's fees, enhance, enhancement payments, the, the, the PAGA payment to, to the state, administrative costs and stuff. And then there was a second tier. And uh, the employer would only be required to fund the second tier if the first tier didn't cover all the required payments. And then there was some coupon component of this where members of the class... I don't even would, want to touch the coupon component of a stripper case. I'm sorry. I just don't want to go there. Let's move on. <laughs> stripper coupons. Um, so there's this weird coupon component of it, but the, nope, you're but still going to cover it, aren't you? Okay, go yeah, ahead. Okay. Stay away from the coupons. Um, so, so, so that was the framework of the settlement really. Um, it was, and it, it, was a, it was a complicated settlement. I will say that it was complicated. Now, what I would say is that they, they sent out notice and this becomes important because obviously in class actions, there has to be notice and they sent out notice and there were uh, almost 4,700 notices, and initially 1,500 or so got returned. And then ultimately, they were left with a total of only 560 notices that were deemed undeliverable out of 4,700, which I thought, you know, it's roughly a little more than 10%. That's not bad, right? It's not terrible. It's not terrible. Yeah. It's not like half the class didn't find out about it. I mean, it's 10%. Um, yeah, and the but the administrator didn't do any types of follow ups or electronic notice or anything like that, so that might have become an issue later on down the line. Well, it does become an issue, and I'm glad you break that. And the first thing you have to know is that the standard of review in a class action case is generally abuse of discretion. However, with respect to notice, because it's due process and it's constitutional, it's de novo. So, yeah. with that in mind, the court looked at. The, the class-wide settlement notice initially, and, and what did they basically conclude? They, they looked at the notice, and, and they didn't find um, that the notice was necessarily insufficient, um, but they found that it was inadequate, and I'm not sure what the distinction is that they're making between those two words, but they explained that it was inadequate because it didn't provide the best notice practical practicable. There would have been better ways to do this notice. Uh, pointed out the, and then the uh, employer talked about 
the fact that the uh, these a lot of these employees are transient people, not transient in the in the homeless sense, but like transient in terms of they move around a lot. So that's transitory. Transitory, Sean. Transitory is the word. Transitory. Yeah. Uh, so, so right. they, they found that that wasn't enough. The the notice okay. was inadequate. So they could have stopped there and sent the case back, but no, they decided to rip apart the entire settlement. And here's where the case bothers me. It's that they look at a number of factors, and we were familiar with these factors. Um, but I think that the way they looked at this and heightened it and talked about it being sort of a, a, a totality of the circumstances test troubles me in these cases. Because the first thing they looked at is clear sailing agreements and attorney's fees. So w- explain that, Sean, for our, for our listeners. Yeah, clear sailing provision really says that the other side um, who's settling with you isn't necessarily going to object to a fee motion that you make. So here, the plaintiff's attorneys were going to make a fee motion, and it said that the other side's not going to object. And this is very common in class action settlements, isn't it? Yes. And is that a dog in the background, Sean? Are you actually have a dog with you while you're yep, doing your podcast? The dog barking. That's the dog barking. Okay. So, um, yes, they, they looked at the, the settlement and the clear sailing and the clear sailing agreements. There's generally nothing wrong, but here they looked at it and they said, you know, ultimately out of the two first $2 million, almost half of it went to the lawyers. We don't like that. So they looked at that factor and they looked at the coupon aspect of it. And they said, all of that, you know, is bad facts, which they are for class settlements. A lot of times we try not to have coupons and settlements, but then they went to the next factor, which is the incentive payment. In the incentive payment, they they were giving $20,000 to the class representatives. Now, the the going rate, and I say that carefully, but the going rate's between $5,000 and $10,000 for class representatives. But $20,000... By the way, I I see that whenever lawyers ask for something more than five, um, it's because people sat for multiple depositions. It was a a very complex case. So yeah, $20,000 is kind of out there. It's outside. Um, right. And so the $20,000 general release enhancement, it looked like it was some kind of different different benefit that was going to them. They didn't like that. Then they looked at the reversionary aspects of the of the settlement. Right. And that means that, um, you know, like the second tier, for example, if that wasn't paid, it goes back to the employer and they didn't like that either. So at the end of the day, they looked at all of these factors and they said, when we look at everything here, the clear sailing, the cash distribution attorney fees, the incentive rewards, the reversionary, and then they go on to say, these are all subtle signs the class counsel have allowed pursuit of their own self-interest and that of the of certain class members to infect the negotiations. Maybe a cheap shot. I don't know. But what bothers me about this is it just makes, as I think we started this show by saying that it's the slow march to, if not the death, the substantial elimination of class actions in the United States. And and I think that's what all of this ultimately shows. Maybe maybe the plan is partly to blame for class actions, but the reality is, in my opinion, class actions are one of the backstops for corporations and employers who steal small amounts of money from average ordinary Americans to get away with it. And they don't get away with it with class actions. You eliminate class actions, they get away with it. I mean, I guess the lesson to be learned here is not to give up on these types of cases, but be careful what you do because 
A, can, there, there's a lot of traps for the unwary, and it can set up bad precedent like what we see here. So no matter what you have, even if you have a you know, facially non-compliant policy like we saw, all the way to when you have a settlement where, where nobody's even fighting and both sides have agreed to settle it, be careful for how you set these arguments up, be careful how you set up these settlements, because it can create bad precedent. So I guess there's, there's lessons to be learned here. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not a positive, uh, this isn't a positive uh, result, I say. So that's our that's all we got for you today. Thank you all very much for listening, and we appreciate listening to the class action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian from Kabatek LLP here in downtown Los Angeles. Always happy to entertain your questions, concerns, uh, but not your complaints about me. You can complain about Sean; it's completely understandable. I'll take I'll take their complaints about Brian too. I'll, I'll take care of those calls. That's fine. Thank you um, so much. But you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, check us out. We do seminars regularly, um, and we're trying to start doing webinars where you can just tune in from wherever you're sitting. Um, and yeah, we're, we'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for tuning in.